I feel like everyone sung louder, which makes me think we don't need a projector. But, um, but we won't do that. Like, we won't like, yeah, I'll stop right there. I'll just stop. Um, okay. In honor of the Super Bowl, I thought I would preach through a whole chapter of the Bible. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Uh, I will pray for us, and we will go ahead and dig on in. Um, King Jesus, this is your day, and we are your people. Our hope is not built on projectors. Our hope is not uh, built on uh, anything. It's not built on buildings. It's not built on websites. It's not built on uh, the ability to even see the words as we see them. Our hope is built on you. This church is about you. We are about you. You are our Savior. You are the only Savior. You are our only hope. And I thank you for the moments where we have these little burps in the Sunday gathering to remind us of that truth uh, in action and in deed. I just thank you that we can sing. No one can take that away from us. No one can take you away from us. Nothing can take you away from us. And so we just come to you now to see what kind of a savior you are, Jesus. Uh, I just pray that you would give me wisdom in this difficult chapter of what to say, what not to say, uh, and how to proceed um, but Lord Jesus, we know that you're with us, you love us, and we just want to love you more. And so we just pray for that, God. Help us to love you more. Help us to love our city more. Help us to love our families more. Help us to love our friends more. Help us to love more because you've loved us so much and so well, Jesus. God, we pray these things for your glory and for our joy. And in your name, uh, Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a Bible road trip today uh, using a guy, not using a guy, looking at a guy named Melchizedek. Uh, he's got a weird name. Uh, and he's mentioned in three places in the whole Bible, but the whole chapter is about him. And ultimately, um, it's not just about talking about some esoteric high priest from Genesis 14, but at the end of the day, in this and through this, we're supposed to see what kind of a savior we have in Jesus and what kind of a sa salvation we have uh, in Jesus. And one of the things he's going to say is one of my single favorite phrases in the whole of the Bible. Uh, the author is going to use this phrase where he says, the law made nothing perfect. And the whole point of this is that our faith and life in Jesus is not about the externals or what we do, but who he is and what he has done. And that is what our hope is founded on. That is the whole point of the whole thing is Jesus. Um, we can base things on externals all the time. Um, you know, we can feel like, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a good I'm a good spouse because I did this for my other spouse, and I'm a good husband because I took out the garbage, or I'm a good dad because my, kid my kids have toys. Uh, we like ritual. We like feeling like we've accomplished something spiritually. We, we did this thing, and therefore, we're good to go. Um, I, I'm a good friend because I did this for my friends. And we, can, we like to point to things and say, I count at what I do because of this thing on the outside. And frankly, Jesus wants a lot more for your life than that. Uh, it's not that action's not important. Action's very important, but that action's founded first and foremost on who Jesus is and what he's done on the inside, and then how we respond to that with our action. That who you are is not who you, what you do. Who you are is what Jesus has done for you to make you his own. And that is a powerful truth that acts as the white-hot fuel for our worship and empowers action. And things like ritual, that's not bad, right? We show up at the same time every week. We're here at 11. There's our ritual. And then we start at 11.05. There's our ritual, right? Jesus instituted ritual, communion, baptism. Uh, doing, things, uh, doing things is not bad. It's not bad to do things. In fact, God gave us bodies and gave us things to interact with and deal with. And now I have to start my timer or else we won't ever get out of here. But, but what we see here 
uh, in the gospel, that the gospel is not primarily what you've done, but that God himself came down to get us. God himself came to rescue us and that our whole lives are based on the reality of that man on that cross and that man risen from the dead and that man ruling and reigning as we speak right now and ultimately that man who's saving his church and that man who's going to put the world back the way it's supposed to be and that man who is God, Jesus Christ. And we can rest in that. We find comfort in that. We find fuel in that. We find hope in that. And we can look to him and see what kind of savior we have because of that. And this phrase, the law made nothing perfect, is so important because the reality of your walk with Jesus is not about what you do, but what he has done. Excuse me. And so we're going to take a bit of a road trip to get to the point. And we have to do that because really the point of the whole sermon comes down in verse 25. But it doesn't make any sense without verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you can go with me to chapter 7. And we'll start with a guy with a funny name. Uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the mo- uh, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth uh, part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So what does this have to do with anything? What are we even talking about, right? We'll pick up the stuff about Abraham in a second. But here we go. He begins to tell us about this guy, Melchizedek. He's first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. Uh, Melchizedek, weird name, but it's really just two really common Hebrew words stuck together. The word for king and the word for righteousness. So when he says his name by translation is King of Righteousness, that's his name, King of Righteousness. I don't know what his parents were thinking when they gave him that name, but there it is. Right? Of course, we find out he doesn't have parents in a second, which is probably why. Um, So he's first by translation of his name, the King of Righteousness. And then he's also King of Salem. Uh, The word Salem... Does it sound like Jerusalem to you? It's supposed to. Uh, Salem is the word shalom in Hebrew, uh, and the, it's the word for peace. And the Hebrew concept of uh, a peace is not simply the absence of fighting, but wholeness and rightness. Uh, it, it's not just the silent treatment and no yelling. It's that everything's the way it's supposed to be. The king of the way everything is supposed to be. The king of restoration. The king of righteousness. Does he start to sound like anybody else we know somewhere along the way? Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Someone's paying attention. Uh, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Does it sound like anybody else we know? The Alpha and the Omega... The beginning and the end before Abraham was, I am. Start messing with uh, verbs and things that don't make any sense. Yes, this is Jesus. Now, there's two predominant theories about Melchizedek. He's either a foreshadow of Jesus, or when we talk about Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he is what is called in fancy language a Christophany, an appearance of the second member of the ontological trinity before the incarnation. Uh, That's what I do think is going on. Yeah, thank you. Um, Jesus shows up before he shows up. And has a talk with Abraham. And I do think that's what's going on. It could be the other thing, but I don't think it makes as much sense. Um, at some point in time, we do have to wade into things and not just say, I have the whole Bible figured out and I've got it all straight and straightforward. This Melchizedek stuff, he appears in three places. It's a little bit confusing, but I believe, in Andrew's opinion, we're talking about a Christophany. We're talking about an appearance of Jesus. Um, other Christians disagree, and it's not weird. It's not like disagreeing about the Trinity or something. It's just the deal. I do think it is Jesus, particularly from this text. Here we go. Keep going. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling or being like the Son of God, 
He continues as a priest forever. And, and part of the reason is I don't think it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the forever priest Melchizedek. There's not a fourth member of the Trinity, right? Like, that's not what's happening here. Because he continues as a priest forever. I think we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about an appearance of Jesus. Now, let's come back to this whole Abraham bit. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. Okay, what the heck are we even talking about? Uh, if you'd go with me so we can get our context, go with me to Genesis 14. Genesis 14 is the story about uh, Abraham and his foolish, 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 foolish nephew Lot. Lot is an idiot. Uh, later he's told that he's righteous, which is good news for us because he actually believes and has faith. And some, for some reason I guess he's righteous because he actually has faith and belief, not because of external actions. Because when you read about Lot in Genesis, Lot's an idiot. Um, and Lot, Abraham's idiot nephew, got himself in the middle of a war and he got himself busted. And Abraham uh, got on a horse with some soldiers and went and crushed the beef between the kings. And they settled it, blah, blah, blah. They have a war. And in verse 17, we get to the, our only mention of Melchizedek in Genesis. So in verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Charlemander and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, so there he is in 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's just what I said a minute ago in Hebrews, brought out bread and wine. Genesis 14, homie brings out bread and wine. This is one of those moments where the guys who are sitting here, we're dealing with guys who, uh, guys and gals who come from a Jewish background. They are, they are Messianic Jews. They are people who grew up Jewish and they had, came, they had come to see that Jesus is Messiah. The story of the Bible is that God made everything good. We did a good job of breaking it. And then God made a promise to send someone to fix it. Good news is Jesus, in, Jesus is in the business of fixing broken things. He has promised to do that. He comes... Uh, 2,000 years ago to do it, and we'll finally bring it all to fruition at his return, which is forthcoming. Now, these are people who came to see, yeah, the Messiah we're waiting for and looking for is this Galilean peasant preacher. Jesus is the guy we're looking for. But as things went on, they began to be like, yeah, but there's all this other stuff. And, you know, when we had the temple, you know, okay, so this guy says all my sins are paid for in Jesus. But I, when I went to the temple and I did these rituals, then I knew I had something crunchy and tangible to hang on to. I could say, well, yeah, I know I'm right with God because I did X, Y, and Z. We do this all the time, right? You ever been in that spot where you really should get busted? And Jesus, please, if you uh, get me out of this speeding ticket, I will take a vow of poverty and give my life to you or whatever it might be, right? We start making deals with a gracious God. Martin Luther is one of the most famous dudes who made a bunch of deals with a gracious God and became a monk out of the deal. But we get the Reformation of the Bible in English, so I'm thankful for it. But nonetheless, he makes a deal with God. Please don't let me die on this road as the lightning is raining down on top of me. Okay? We do that. But that's not how Jesus operates. Right? That, that's not the gospel. That's not, Jesus, forgive me for my sins, and I will. It's, it is finished and you're forgiven. This is the gospel. This is the reality of the God that we follow, the God that we worship, and who Jesus is. But the crunchiness of the thing, the crunchiness of the temple, the crunchiness of tradition began to have an appeal to them. And they began to be like, yeah, Jesus is cool, but so is this other stuff. Jesus is cool and this other stuff. Now, it can be Jesus is cool over some other stuff. That's fine. History's good. The church is built on history. History. 
You love Jesus because somebody told you, told you, told somebody who 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 told you. Welcome to the history of the church. You love Jesus because somebody else loved Jesus and told you about Jesus. History is not bad, but that is less important than Jesus and his word. Does that make sense? Good, not over. And they're beginning to elevate those things over Jesus. And it's dangerous, and he's calling them back to it. And so Melchizedek, and so as they're hearing this, right, in 18... They're beginning to think, yeah, we really like that Levitical thing and, and all this stuff. And he's saying, hey, there's someone who's like Melchizedek. It's Jesus, wink, wink. And then as they think back on the story, this is one of those things where um, it's not bad or wrong not to be really familiar with your Old Testament, but it is a good thing to do and to enjoy. They're supposed to think, wait a sec, Melchizedek. Wait a sec, Melchizedek appears twice. Psalm 110, Genesis 14. Wait a second, Melchizedek came out, and wasn't there bread and wine with Melchizedek? Wait a minute. And their faces are supposed to melt, and they're supposed to be like, God's doing wacky, wild stuff. Right? You hear that? The bread and wine. Um, He was priest of God Most High, and blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And exit Melchizedek. That's it. There you go, Genesis 14. But what happened there? Some really big, important stuff happened there. Abraham the patriarch, and we don't really have patriarchs, so this might, uh, you know, this might not really resonate with you, but it's supposed to, to, to resonate with them, and it's supposed to resonate with you. Abraham is a guy that we have, like, kids' ministry songs, Father Abraham, and I don't actually know the tune because I wasn't ever in kids' ministry because I didn't grow up in the church, but I'm told there are songs people sing about Father Abraham, and you probably know them if you grew up in the church. Uh, but, but people look back and say, Father Abraham. To these guys, it's even more so, and he's saying, hey, Abraham is this dude, but look, the patriarch bows a knee to Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth of everything. He's honoring Melchizedek as higher than himself. Here's the thing, if you're not familiar with the Hebrew background, nobody's higher than Abraham but God, period. Nobody. Sometimes Moses and Abraham sit like parallel, but nobody's more important than Abraham. He's the guy that gets the promises, which the author of Hebrews is going to say. So he's beginning to say, hey, guys, hey, guys, look at Melchizedek. And Jesus is Mil- I think he's trying to say Jesus is Melchizedek. He's hinting at it. He doesn't out and out say it. That's why I have to say this is my opinion. But he all but comes out and says it, right? Jesus says things of himself like of this Abraham guy. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. It's, the, the grammar is jacked up, right? Before Abraham was, I am. Uh, I am. Interestingly enough, this is the same word that God calls himself when Moses, the stuttering murderer, shows up and has another theophany, is the fancy word for it. God appears in a bush. And Moses gives God a bunch of reasons why he shouldn't go and tell Egypt that everybody has to get let free. And he says, well, who should I say sent you there in Exodus 3.14? And he says, go and tell them, I am sent you. Now, what's really nerd-erific, and I can't help myself, but we'll go there. Um, so the word that's used there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, would have been Jesus' Bible. In, in uh, Exodus 3.14, is ego emi. Now the, now, the nerdy thing here is that in, in Greek, you don't need the word ego to say emi, because emi is the word I am. It's the verb. It's the to be verb, like was, is, and all that stuff, right? Um, 
So he says this phrase, ego ami, and it's a weird Greek construct that almost never anybody ever does, and it's supposed to emphasize that God in Exodus 3.14 from the Hebrew is saying, I am. Now, what's the phrase that Jesus says when he says, before Abraham was, I am? Ego ami. What else does he say that? Well, there's other places he says that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. When Jesus is saying that, he's saying something that to our uh, Gentile ears we miss. He's saying something that to the Hebrew hearers who are hearing Jesus say, I've brought the gospel and I'm Messiah. He's not just saying to them, I'm Messiah. He's saying to them, I'm God. And we can look and be like, well, he doesn't say I'm God. And it's like, well, that's because you don't have the right ears. To them, they're freaking out and ready to throw rocks at him because he's saying, I am like the burning bush, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the son of man, taking on the title from Daniel for himself. And so this is one of those things where the author of Hebrews is saying this stuff to him, and sometimes we don't quite have uh, uh, the lens for it, but they're supposed to be freaking out right now. They're supposed to be freaking out when he starts talking about Melchizedek because they realize, oh, Maybe we're missing something in this whole Jesus thing. But he goes on. Okay. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office? Oh, yeah, because he gave him ten a tenth, right? The office of the commandment of the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. He's locating the Levitical priesthood under Abraham. Abraham is better than Aaron, the guy who's the start, the, the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. But this man who does not have descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now he just says something. You're not even gonna argue with me here, he says. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. We're not even gonna argue about it. If Abraham is gonna bend the knee to Melchizedek, Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And that's where they'd be like, no, he's not. But he's like, no, no, come on. Read Genesis 14. And then he goes on. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. We're back into the present tense. Testify who he lives, right? Because Jesus is risen from the dead. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So he's saying, so if Abraham's the patriarch, everybody under a Abraham is bowing a knee to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is better. Now, what the heck does this have to do with externals and the law making things perfect? Well, first of all, we have to get there, because I'm not going to close the sermon down here. But the thing is here, look at what they're leaning on. They're leaning on Abraham, and they're living, leaning on Levi and the Levitical priesthood. Now, Abraham really signifies for them history. You know, Jesus will even say, if Abraham was your father, you would say, hey, if, he, if you really have lineage to that guy, you would understand, I'm Messiah, I'm the answer to the promise, I'm the one. But they lean on history rather than opening their eyes to the fact that God had sent salvation to the earth. Now, the Levites have the law. And the law is the moral external code. Right? This is what you do. This is how you know you're right in the world. These are the things you do. And here's the thing. We tend to lean on one of these two things. Now, maybe we might not be, and in fact, if you are, I would love to talk to you, first century Jewish folk who are trying to sort out the Messiah. If you happen to be in that camp, let's talk. Um, but we, we need to be careful not to distance ourselves too far from these cats that we miss that we can do the same things. 
man, I can lean on my history, I can re- lean on my morality all day long, right? We can lean on history in a variety of ways. Yeah, you know, I, I know, my, my dad was a preacher, whatever, I, I've heard it all. Really? The, the I am is revealing himself to his people in time, and you've heard it all? No. Oh, I've heard it all, I've, heard it all. I've been a Christian for decades. Ain't got nothing new. Oh, please, brother, sister, like, no, like, this, this is the truth of God. This is living and active. It is God-breathed. You know, I read the Bible in 1977. I think I'm covered. I used to go to church all the time. You can go down the list. There's a lot of things we can say. The things that we've done, and we can stand on the things we've done and say, those things make me righteous. And even those things give me some kind of clout or spiritual walk with Jesus. They're claiming Abraham. And the Levites are just the same way, Right? I know I'm right with God because of the things I do. I know that I'm right with God because I got up this morning and I did some stuff. I know I'm right with God because I made it. It's Super Bowl Sunday and I still came. I'm here and I know I'm right with God because I did it. Uh, I got up and I preached a sermon. I got up and I preached for a year. I got up and I preached for 10 years. These are not the things that make us right with God. They're things we get to do because we're right with God. We get to do in response to the depth and the riches of who Jesus is. And so he's clearing the deck. It's not about your history. It's not about your spiritual pedigree. And it's not about the things you've done or the things you do. Let's clear the deck and now let's switch some gears. Because as you're reading Hebrews, he almost has an awkward switch here. Where you're like, wait, what is happening? Check it out. It's in verse 11. Now, perfection had been attainable through the political priesthood. We weren't talking about the perfection attainable through the Levitical priesthood. We were talking about this guy and the bowing and the whatever, the loins and all this stuff, right? Now, perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law. So I have to read at the bottom, come back up here, and then unpack this, or else we'll miss him because he's, he's crazy. He's all over the place. Uh, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? If if the old thing did it, if morality did it, if doing good stuff all the time did it, why the heck would we need anything else? Why the heck are we waiting for a promise? Because there's sort of two big schools of thought as Messiah is coming, as Jesus is coming. There's those who make it all about the rules. They're called Pharisees and how good they follow the rules. So there's a group that are waiting to just continue to follow the rules so God can show up and say, oh, you guys are awesome and I'm going to throw you a parade because you follow the rules and you, you know, I don't know, you don't watch rated R movies or whatever. Yay, here's your parade for not watching movies. Right? And there's another set that's kind of swimming light up, swimming going right along there who are waiting for the, for the Messiah. They're waiting for the, the end times conqueror pom- promised in the Psalms. They're waiting for that guy who's going to come and vindicate the righteous. They're waiting for the guy who's going to wipe every tear from every eye. They're waiting for the guy who's going to put the Holy Spirit in his people. They're waiting for the guy who's going to take hearts of stone and give hearts of life. They're waiting for the guy who's not just going to put his Holy Spirit on guys like David sometimes, but who's going to send his Holy Spirit and dwell in God's people. They're waiting for the guy who's going to wipe every tear. They're waiting for the guy who's going to end bloodshed and murder. They're waiting for the guy who's going to put things back the way it was in the garden. They're waiting for the guy who's going to come and bring Yahweh's reign to the earth. And these guys are getting back distracted with the rules. We're not about rules. Christianity is not, friends, not sinning. I mean, it's not a license to sin. 
I write to you, children, that you would not sin, but if you do, do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. What further need would there have been if it was all about the rules, guys? It's not the point of the law to rise after the order of Melchizedek. Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So we're going to come back to that, I promise. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident, and we're going to, I've got to get down to the bottom. We're getting there. No one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that one, that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses has nothing to say about priests. This is not a uh, continuation of the law. This is not law 2.0. This is a complete end of the law. There's this guy who's coming from the line of Judah. Last time a king tried to do priestly things, his name was Saul, and it went really, really poorly for him, and it was the straw that broke the camel's back, and he didn't even get to be king no more. King no more? He didn't get to be king anymore. Right? Because he thought it was about externals rather than trusting God. But I don't have time for that right now. Okay? But there's a change. He's trying to make clear that Jesus is really, really, really different. It's not just a continuation. That's why he says this stuff here. Now we'll go back. Because there isn't this further need. Further than verse 13. For, the, for one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. He's being clear. This is not Levi 2.0. This is not Law 2.0. The deck is clear. He's come. Messiah has come and he's changed everything. Jesus has come to change everything. Because there's the old covenant and the new covenant. And, and, and Jesus said, I've come, don't, the, we don't abolish the law or the prophets, so we don't throw away the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, or the First Testament, or whatever other thing you want to call it. We don't throw it away, but we don't live under the law anymore. And this is really, really important, because honestly, we kind of, I've seen this often where people like go to the gospel for the truth of Jesus. They go to the gospel for the reality that Jesus saves sinners, Jesus makes people right, Jesus makes you whole, but then when you say, but then how do I get the church to do something? How do I get my kids to do something? How do I get people to do things? Instead of saying, I'm just going to tell you that again and tell you what it looks like to respond to that from the scriptures. We say, man, is there a verse in Leviticus about that one? Let's see what that thing says. Right? Anybody have someone bring it up over tattoos? I have. You know, Leviticus says that you can't have tattoos. That's not what Leviticus says for starters. It's the same word that's used when there's the, the, the worship off and the prophets of Baal are doing weird stuff and cutting themselves. That's the same word. So that's different than getting a mom tattoo, by the way. It's out of context. <laughs> by the way, if you don't like it, email me. I'll email you right back, okay? It's the truth. It's out of context. But what we do is we say, I can't get you not to get a tattoo from the gospel because that's not your righteousness. It's all internal, not external. So I better go to the law to get a thing to get you to do the thing I want you to do so I can pull your arm back and push you down and say, look, I got a verse and now you got to do it. That's not the point. We don't get rid of the Torah and we don't get rid of the Tanakh because it tells us about Jesus. The law is over. It made nothing perfect. It's not about moralism. It's not about what we do. It's about Jesus. And when we see him and know him, the more we know him, the more we want to love him and love others. And that's the truth of the Bible. 
That's why it counts. That's why we don't throw away the Torah, because it points us to Messiah. Messiah is Jesus, and Jesus came to save us from ourselves. But the covenant is a new covenant. It's discontinuity, not continuity. It's not how do we make this thing fit. It's that we have this whole new administration by which God is operating in the world. Uh, They're saved the same way we are. That's pretty clear. Saved by faith in Jesus, though they didn't know him yet. The people of God are, the Old Testament people of God are saved the same way as the New Testament people of God, but we live under the new covenant where the circumcision is in our heart, where the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. The old covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people if you walk in my ways. The new covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will empower you and cause you to walk in my ways. And it's new and he wants them to see that. They're trying to go back to the old thing and the thing is, the old thing is over. This is before the temple's destroyed. There are still sacrifices happening. There are still priests there. There is still stuff happening. But as far as God's concerned, the shop is closed. That stuff is over, and we'll see why in a second. Verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. Oh, man. This is where I stop myself. Now, see, then I say I'll stop myself, and then I don't stop myself. But the Jerry Reed song from the Smoking the Bandit just plays in my head. We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. So there it is. And that is the life that my wife and kids live with. Sorry, guys. Um, I did avoid any, so far, any football puns. So you can be thankful for that. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. It's not about his history, his family, his lineage, or his morality. It's not about the legal requirement, and it's not about his bodily descent. There's that thing again, right? The morality and the history. But by the power of an indestructible life. That's why he gets to be the priest. Because he rose from the dead, that's why. Not because he's got a last name. Right? John chapter 1 says this, which is so important for us to remember as we think about these things. In verse 9, the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, or power, to become children of God who were born not of blood, not because they're family, nor the will of man, not how hard they tried, or of the, uh, uh, of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Boom. It's everywhere. And here's what he says. He goes to this text. For it is witnessed of him. Now we're clearly speaking of Jesus, by the way. For it is witnessed of him. Hey! Super Bowl miracle. <laughs> that was awesome. I, God's good. God's people are good. God works. That is awesome. There it is. Uh, now I'm distracted because it's nice. Um, he says this. Now this, this is a quote from Psalm 110. The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. This is the single most quoted psalm of all the psalms in the New Testament. This is Psalm 110. Now, Psalm 110 is ascribed not only in the the, uh, 
extra script at the top, but by all the biblical authors as being of David. And when they locate this as its origin in David, they rarely speak about his king. And maybe in all of the cases where they do this, they might not speak about him as king at all. They speak about him as what? A prophet. A prophet who's telling of the things to come. Now this psalm that I'm about to read this verse from starts with the phrase, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, for your feet. Yahweh, first word, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh said to Adonai, which is a word that is so special and so unique that these awesome nerd Bible dudes called the Masorites who protected the Hebrew Bible text for us who felt that the name Yahweh was so holy they don't use it, they don't pronounce it, they don't put vowels on it. What word do they use instead of Yahweh when they're talking about God? Adonai. So in the Hebrew, it's a word, and every time it's used, it's always, I think, every, I think in every instance, the word Adonai, which comes to the word Adon, which means Lord, is used in reference to God. So what does that mean happens in Psalm 110? God said to God, sit in my right hand until you make, I make an, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, that gets either redundant, spooky, or Trinitarian. Uh, you pick. <laughs> Actually, let's go to that psalm. Just look at at least the top part of it. The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until you make your enemies a footstool uh, for your feet. The Lord sends from Zion. Zion is also Jerusalem, is also Salem. Psalm 78, I think. Zion and Salem are used. Remember King of Salem, that part. Your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That's a gospel promise. The people of God come freely to Jesus because he's so awesome. It's right there in Psalm 110. There's a reason they quote this thing a lot. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your mouth will be yours. The Lord is sworn and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever out of the, after the order of Melchizedek. And, and now, mind you, these guys have been reading. We've done this over weeks. These guys have been reading paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, showing them the gospel and the power of Jesus. And we are at the middle section where the band comes out and plays. And in that, it's halftime. I, I was going to not do it, and then there it is. Um, <laughs> there it is. Okay, so we're at halftime, and we're in the middle of the book, and these moralistic, religious, hoity-toit high toppers are now having the truth of the grace and the mercy of Jesus just wash over them. I have to wonder what it's like to be in the room when they're reading this, to be totally honest with you. What's happening in their hearts right now? I, my hope and my prayer for them and my hope and my prayer for me and for you is that they're feeling liberated, not guilty, not condemned, but that they're getting freed. They're getting freed up here. For as witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That word forever is going to be very important for us in just about a second. Eh, in about five minutes. Uh, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Here's my favorite verse. For the law made nothing perfect. What you do to try and make yourself right with God is nothing. It is set aside. Get rid of it. Ditch it. If you're keeping score on your holiness, get rid of it and be free. If, if you're like me and you have your little cutout printout because you're low tech and you're checking off 
the days of the year because it's just out of January and there's a bunch of empty spots on your daily reading plan and you look at it and you feel guilty, just go ahead and recycle it because that's not why you have the thing. You have the thing so you can keep track because you were in Joshua 14 yesterday, now you're Joshua 15 today. And if today was, is February 2nd and yesterday was January 15th, I would invite you to do two things. Chuck it, or pardon me, recycle it. <laughs> or just pick up Joshua 15 and read it and know that the God of the universe would like to spend some time with you. Not because he needs to, but because he loves you. Because he's a good parent. We call him father for a reason. If that's getting in the way of your intimacy with Christ, if you're feeling bad or guilty about your Bible reading plan or whatever other thing, set it aside. Get rid of it. It's not the point. The point is getting in your Bible to hear from his voice. But hear it. That whole thing, the law, the covenant, the book of Leviticus, though it's still worth reading and it's still good and it's still awesome. And we'll see why in a second, I hope. Set aside. Because why? It's weak. External weak. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Last week we talked, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. And because of everything Jesus has done, we get to draw near to Jesus in freedom and in grace and in mercy and in truth. So it's not about getting holy to get close to God. It's that you've been made holy, so now you can get close to God. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, again, this is Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. There's uh, There's no going back on the gospel that you've received. You can't fail out of God's love. This makes Jesus the grantor of a better covenant. Praise the Lord. The former priest, oh, this is good. Oh, man, this is good. I had to preach all that because I want to preach this part this week. Now here we go. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in the office. When you have to rely on externals to deal with your sin, it turns out it takes a lot of work. And they died. They're human beings. They can only do so much. That's why our hope's not in a guy or a gal or whoever. Your hope's not in your community group leader, your Bible study leader. Your hope's not in me. Your hope's not in the other pastors. Your hope's not in people. Because at some point in time, I'm out of here. See ya. Home with Jesus. Praise the Lord. I don't know when that is. He does. He points to times. Whatever. But it turns out if, if I get hit by a metro tomorrow, this church is fine. Because you got Jesus. Right? Because of this. Because of verse 24. Because the number one thing that can take you down is verse 23. By death from continuing in office. But, for 24, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the utmost 
completely, all the time, utmost. We don't use that word anymore. It's a word that's on the devotional, right? And it's a fine devotional. But whoever says, I don't use the word utmost in my uh, normal speaking. But ultimate, right? Those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The consequence of the reality of Melchizedek, Jesus, this Jesus priest, Melchizedek, thingamajigger, uh, being better than Abraham, being better than the law, being better than Levi, being superior to all these things, is that he's not sleeping. He had a bad week, he's not absent. He's not gone. He hasn't forgotten you. He didn't die. He is alive. All those things. Because why? The consequence of the reality of who Jesus is, he's able to save to the utmost, fully, completely. I mean, you're washed fully clean. You are fully new in the eyes of God. He, he, he remembers your lawless deeds, your, sinless, your sins and lawless deeds no more. Uh, your sin as far as the east is from the west. He who did not spare his only son, right? This is what's happening in this reality of the gospel. And hear this. Those who draw near to God through him. We can draw, I mean, in Jesus' name, right? You say that phrase, in Jesus' name. It, it's, not, um, it's not witchcraft. It's not uh, uh, anything. It's in, G, in Jesus. His name is him in, in the old writing. The person of G, in the person of Jesus, I draw to God because I'm in Jesus and Jesus is in me. I'm abiding in him and he is abiding in me. I am the body. He is the head. I'm in Jesus and so are you. And that's why I can draw near to the Father. Because of him and his completed work. That's why I can have a completely unfettered relationship with me and God. It's because of Jesus who is God did it all. Praise the Lord. The consequence of that, he's able to save completely. We're able to have this relationship with God as we draw near to him. Um, and this, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's you. I mean, Every time I get to one of these, I do stop and point it out because it is hard for us to imagine that Jesus Christ, omnipotent, omnipresent God of the universe, who is seated, ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father, for you is interceding for you. Right? We have an image in our mind that God is keeping score of all your wrongdoing. Yeah, I didn't read my Bible this morning, but I made it to church this morning, and then... Uh, I did pray, and then I did eat too many cheeseburgers, and then, right, we, we, we put it on the scale, and it evens out. That, that instead of God taking all your wrongdoing and keeping score with it, God, Jesus Christ, is taking all your wrongdoing, even as a Christian, to the throne of the Father, and everything you do, taking it to him every time, and constantly saying, paid in full. Paid in full. That guy, that gal, they belong to me. They are paid in full. Paid in full. You screwed up, paid in full. Paid in full. Over and over and over and over again forever. We have this image of him keeping score, and he's just taking all those sins up to the Father and saying, got that one. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. Clean. For it was indeed fitting... It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. That's who's going to bat for you.
For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He doesn't have to deal with his junk. He's just dealing with yours. Praise the Lord and mine. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself on the cross. Put that in myself. That's a parenthetical note. That's not what it says in my Bible. It's just, I'm exegeting, explaining. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. Good news for you. That's true for you too as the church. When you're walking with people, when their friendships are jacked up or their marriage is jacked up or their parenting's jacked up or just jacked up and you're walking with them telling them the truth of Jesus, he didn't pick you to do that job today or tomorrow or whenever because you got to have all the answers. He didn't pick you because you have a PhD in psychology and if you do, that's fine. It's not why he picked you. He picked you because you're weak, and the God of the universe likes to use weak things to do beautiful things. So you don't have to pretend to be strong, or like you're the one without sin, or like you've got it all figured out. Weep with the weeping. Repent with the weeping. You ever been walking with somebody in their junk, and you realize, I've got some junk I need to deal with. I've got somebody to talk to. I've got to repent to somebody. Maybe some of that's for you. This is not professional church, folks. This is broken people being used by the God of the universe to do beautiful things. You don't have to have it all figured out to start walking with people, helping people, pointing the truth of Jesus. It's true of the high priest, it's true of them. Now, of course, we have not just, it's not backup. Backup's the wrong word for our high priest, Jesus Christ. Right? Because we're weak. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, capital S, who's been made perfect forever. Same yesterday, today, and forever. The Alpha, the Omega, the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And so it's not about externals, and it is about something better because we have this kind of Savior. Just a couple things to observe here. How much better is uh, the new covenant than the old covenant, the gospel, than law, the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, his blood broken, his body broken and bloodshed for us rather than getting up and making sure I'm checking off all the right Levitical laws. Um, This is the kind of Savior we have in Jesus. This is the kind of priest we have. He's working from the beginning to the end. I am, before Abraham was, I am, before creation, before time, before you, before the earth, before it all, he's there. To the end. When it's all said and done, we're there with him, the people of God restored with him, tears wiped from eyes, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth, restored with him forever. He is the bookend of the whole story, the whole point of the whole story, the center of the story, the, the jam and the jelly and the bread and the bread itself. He's everything. He is all And that God is working for his glory and for your joy to restore you to the God of the universe. That's the kind of high priest we have. Not only that, he's God, holy, innocent, unstained, separated, exalted, separate from sinners. So the one who's separate from sinners comes to save sinners and give life. 
But did you see the thing happening in there? Where I had my little parenthetical cross statement. He has no need like the, those high priests to offer sacrifice daily first to his own sins and in the season of the people. Since he did this once for all, he offered up himself. Not only is he the perfect priest, he's the perfect sacrifice. He's sinless, spotless, perfect, able to save, standing in your place, condemned he stood in my place for my sins, for his glory, and for my joy, and to give me life. It's not just that he's a good teacher, and it's not just that he's a dude, because it turns out, for all my iniquity and all my sins, my sins against God are infinite, and i got to do some hard time for that. And so does everybody else. But Jesus being innocent and spotless, doesn't have any hard time to do. And he comes and he pays the price in my place to give us life. Always know it's only half a gospel if you stop at the cross. He came to pay the price for sins and give life. And he can do this because he's not only the priest, but he's the lamb. Right? And Psalm 110, man, you read that when you go home? It ends heavy. It ends with the vindication of the righteous and Jesus coming and settling the score. Jesus coming for all who said he was a liar or a, a lunatic or an idiot to show him he's not. And he comes to vindicate the righteous. But the book of Revelation does this amazing thing because it's all prophetic and there's all these crazy images. And you're like, what's happening here? The thing we know about it, though, though he is going to come and he's going to deal with all the wicked and all the nastiness and all the people who hurt other people and all the people who do all those things, he's coming to deal with those someday. But before he did those things, the one who's coming to judge came to save. And he came to save to the utmost. And he came to invite all into this, into this reality. Come on in. The, the doors are open. Come and get life. Come and get forgiven. Come. He is coming back. But first he came and made the way for all people to know him. And he's coming to vindicate the righteous, which is good news because we do live in a nasty world and we have nasty hearts and he comes and he saves and he forgives. But not only that, again, if we'd been sitting in the room reading Hebrews, right? What's the, what's the main thing Hebrews has emphasized about his priesthood to this point? Not that he's God as priest, but that he's man. Fully God, fully human. So we have this high priest. So this one who's separate from sinners, who came and offered himself, who's going to vindicate the righteous and save sinners and, and make his enemies his friends and do all this wonderful stuff, isn't just God far and distant, but God who's come and has... I don't think I would have noticed it if we had had the music. But there was a line in that song, and I'm going to butcher it brutally because it hit me when we were singing it without words, and so forgive me for the remix. But it said something in effect of that those who trod which is another old-timey word, which is great. Those who trod where he trod, trod? What's the past tense of trod? Those who trod where he trod? Told you I was going to butcher it, but it did almost make me cry. Those who are walking where he walked. This is not God far and distant. This is God present. Those who walked where he walked, call him the son of man. He's our Savior who knows us, relates to us for his glory and our joy, is kind to us, condescends to us. So he's priest, high priest, perfect, unstopping, unfailing, going to God on our behalf. He's the sacrifice who's offered it. So he's, he's 
God who is the high priest, he's the sacrifice, and he's the God-man who's the high priest who relates to us in every sin, every weakness, every jacked-up moment, every dark day of our life is there with us and in it for his glory and our joy. And he's perfect forever, right? That's the last thing we heard there. He's perfect forever. What does this mean? Unlike the other priests, he's unrelenting in this priestly work on our behalf. He's unrelentingly for his glory and your joy in your life because the joy that we have is his glory, is seeing the beauty in his life, and he is more for you. I mean, that's one of the reoccurring themes I've never seen in Hebrews is this time, is how much this is about him being for us for his glory, him being for us, enjoying him and seeing his beauty so that we would point to it and glorify him and say, man, Jesus is amazing. So what does he give us to do? Right? This isn't, okay, cool, go home and balance your checkbook and whatever. Be saved. Galatians 5, verse 1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. In the Holman Standard, it says, it's for freedom that he's liberated you. He has busted you out of the prison that you made for yourself with your own life and your own selfishness, and your own morality, and your own law. He's busted you out of that. And we have this tendency when we get busted out, when we get liberated by Jesus, when he sets us free to do one of two things. Act like we're still in jail. It's hard to have a prison riot when you're outside, by the way. We live institutionalized. We live like we're still stuck under our own junk and our own sin. Uh, we go back to wiling out or whatever we miss. We have this beautiful joy in Jesus. It's not don't sin. It's love Jesus. It's see his beauty. It's, it's reach out to him. It's enjoy him. Yes, that involves not turning to your sin, but turning to him. But it's first and foremost about enjoying him. That is the power of repentance. Either that or we kind of live like we're just still uh, saying sorry for the things that got us into the prison we built for ourselves begin with, right? You're outside. You've been set free. You should have done hard time, and the innocent one did hard time for you. He did more hard time than you can even imagine, and you're free. You're out. Be free. Live free. Be saved. Be what you already are. Not like an army commercial. Be all the... No, you are saved right now if you are in Christ, and if you are not, be saved now. What else does he give us? Draw near to God. That's the point of your life, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to, to, to know him deeper and more, and respond to him by loving him and others. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You are the great high priest. You have set us free. We are yours, and you are ours. There's nothing we can do to earn your love, and it's given to us as a gift, and we're yours. We're saved. Help us not to, to live under the weight of the things that we are already entangled to, into. Help, help free us from the things that we're still submitting ourselves to when we don't even have to. Help us to, to not hear every lie of the enemy that we're free from. Save us. We're saved. We are saved. We're being saved and we will be saved. Help us to live in the reality that you've done it all. It's finished. It's over. We're free. Help us to just stop keeping score. Help us to stop comparing ourselves to others. Help us to stop uh, uh, treating you differently than you are. 
Help us to stop treating you like someone who's keeping score on us because you're not. Help us to treat you like you are, God, our wonderful, beautiful, heavenly Father who loves us. And Jesus, help us to respond to you in the grace and mercy you've set out for us. We love you, Jesus. Praise in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen.